broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club. Hosted by Douglas Hamandiche. Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. How you guys doing out there? Another episode of the Mic Drop Club. And this one today is special. This Mic Drop episode is brought to you courtesy of Batika Swaby. That's right, this is the second time she's been on the show. But this time she is taking over the show as it were. And we're going to play you a live event she has done whereby we were exploring the mental health issues affecting black, Asian and minority ethnic groups. So this was a special live session that Matika put together for Benevolent Health. It was available via her Facebook channel. So I'm going to play extracts for it. In fact, I'm going to play the whole thing. And please tune in and all the links to get hold of of myself, the guest speakers there. I want to actually send out a special shout out to Eduardo. He was on there. Very eloquent dude. Very cool, cool dude as well. Breaking down some of the challenges that are affecting um, ethnic minority communities pertaining to mental health. Just relax and enjoy this live session hosted by Matika Swaby on her Facebook channel. Check it out. You are so much more. MikeDropClub.com Make life boom. Welcome to day 22 of the Reinforce, Energize and Focus Stress Awareness Program. I am super excited to be on today. We are talking about one of my favorite topics, BME and mental health. So we're going to be looking at some of the challenges um, facing the BME communities around mental health in this time. I've got two fantastic people with me who I absolutely love and adore. Um, I have got Douglas Hamdishi, who is going to be talking to us from the perspective uh, of a chief clinical uh, officer, a mental health nurse, and um, someone who has loads of experience as a podcast host. And then we have our lovely Eduardo, who is an art creator art creator an art creator and a mental health advocate. So welcome guys. How are you guys doing there? You're right. Hey. <laughs> It's so good to have you on. Ditto. Yeah, we're super excited to be here. So, I mean, I, I've, I've obviously met you guys in different circumstances. Um, it, Eduardo, we met through art um, because I was doing a stress awareness um, event, a launch around looking at... Um, our, uh, our addiction to digital really and um, we had an amazing artist down there Martin Grover and that's how we met so tell us about your um, perspective on um, mental health for the um, BME community do you think it's still a taboo topic goodness um, you don't start with the easy questions <laughs> you don't start with the easy questions I, I think we always discuss the BME community as one community. Yeah. We have to remember there are different communities and there are different pockets within, within that in itself. I think in the, in, in the mainstream discussion, I would say what was the academic issue has become more of a mainstream issue. So you, you have people that you you wouldn't associate with questioning mental their mental health and having informed discussions on it, wanting to push the agenda, wanting to understand more about themselves, 
But then again, there are deep-seated, I would say, um, cultural issues to be addressed, especially when it comes to mental health. Um, Within many communities, mental health is the ultimate taboo. Mm. Um, I can speak from a personal experience. Sometimes I get a lot of support, but in other times I don't because I'm a high-functioning individual. Just to put it out there, there are different levels of functionality when when it comes to mental health. Mm. So on the outside, I may seem very well put together and the rest of it, but because you only see the facade and you don't see what's behind the facade, you sometimes don't get to question, you you don't get the same level of support, let's just say, when it comes to your individual um, mental health needs. So I would say to that question, it depends. There are a lot of people in the art community who are very, um, very active in mental health, who discuss it widely and advocate for it um, to varying levels of success. And there are others who never touch it and who have no shock for mental health because certainly we don't want to understand it. So there's a gulf. Yeah. Doug, maybe you can fill in, because obviously you've got a deep kind of NHS background and have worked um, strategically and on the front line as a clinician. So you would have, you've got kind of a really broad spectrum of, um, you know, taboos and uh, treatment disparity. I wonder if you can add to this. Sure enough. Um, I think everything Eduardo was saying, I fully stand by that. And He's painting a picture that is very complicated because although we come under the black banner of black, Asian, minority, ethnic groups, mm. within those groups, there are very specific nuances in mm. how they manage mental health and other cultural variances as well, which has an impact on the collective group. So this sometimes can make it difficult to, say, mobilize a cohesive message in particular to something such as mental health, like um, how we, how are we addressing it in that way? Institutionally, um, we, within health, we understand it it a lot more in terms of the prevalence. And there's also in terms of what people are experiencing within the narratives of their own lives. Because again, if if you're experiencing mental health, for example, and Say, say for example, you take the extreme end of mental health and you're, um, you're not functioning well, you're starting to hallucinate. Sometimes these things that you are seeing and experiencing are directly yeah. associated with your ethnicity, with your cultural background, how you are raised and your belief systems. So supporting people and helping them unpack some of those issues becomes very, very complicated. I'm happy that we're having this conversation. And Martika, I must thank you sincerely that every conversation that we put out, that people like you um, are brave enough in Eduardo to expose this to the masses, raises the conversation. And I think it's one that needs to go to the highest level in order Mm -hmm. for us to mobilize the right sort of supports because there's racism and discrimination that we, we talk about outside of mental health. Then you also got the um, social economic factors that we are, um, well, people from BAME groups are more are more likely to find themselves in the, the ones when they're socially, economically deprived neighborhoods, all of those types of things. Then you've got the stigma that you're dealing with anyway around mental health. Is, and it's great that so many celebrities of that background and outside that background are coming out, talking about it. The royal family are very pro. I know... Um, Prince William yeah. um, is very vocal about mental health and Harry was as well, you know, so, and the j- criminal justice system, because here's where I'm conflicted by, um, here's where I find the biggest challenge myself, is the criminal justice system, when somebody is deemed not to be able to look after themselves or not being able to keep themselves safe or others or at risk to themselves or other people, whichever way you want to frame that okay that there's a criminal justice component attached to that that also links in with health Mm. and this is where i think a lot of focus needs to be at because 
at the, at the point whereby a clinician, a nurse, a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a support worker is supporting people with mental health, sometimes their interventions, the way they want to support and help somebody is greatly impacted upon by the criminal justice system, <laughs> you know? And that there is a big, big problem and and then and other other factors that we can we can talk on, on the show really yeah so that, that that's me just trying to um expand it all out there's so many moving pieces to this um we can I'm keen to see how it goes and shapes in 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 the spirit of this conversation really yeah I mean you you've touched on some key areas there in terms of uh, diversity and um you know the BME community not being a homogenous group that's key. Um, I think the criminal justice system has a huge impact on, um, you know, how we treat and and view um, mental health, especially with the Mental Health Act. I mean, I don't know if anyone's been reading um, the coronavirus bill, which significantly changes the um, the, the Mental Health Act, and and so you know, uh, BME communities and potentially other vulnerable communities are going to be, um, you know, more at risk potentially of um, discrimination under our, our new uh, regime. And I think it's really key that we start to think about some of these areas because actually one of the things that I think is um, really important in treating people per se, I mean, if you look at the stats, for example, I mean, uh, black men are 20% more like likely than their white counterparts to um, experience some trauma or psychological distress for, you know, a number of reasons. If you look at the stats of men versus women going into treatment, there are far more um, men that appear um, in acute wards um, with uh, mental health breakdown um, suicide, you know, whatever the issues are in an acute setting, then in primary care. So going for counselling and, and, and that kind of what I would call primary care upfront um, support and not the, the back end, which I think crim- the criminal justice sector kind of fits into um, that back end when actually things have got out of um, balance, out of control, and actually you need an emergency intervention. So if we're looking at this from a preventative perspective and the idea that, you know, we all have mental health, regardless, age, sex, um, nationality, whatever. I mean, how do we make, I guess, preventative me- mental health more accessible to um, being BME communities. And I mean, I know that, you know, we're not one homogenous group of people, but I, I, I wonder about the, the treatment disparity and the, the challenge sometimes to access support. I mean, you touched on that a little bit, Eduardo, that you're high functioning. So people assume that actually you're okay and, and you don't need help. And, you know, if you think about how kind of, for example, black men have been portrayed in the mass media and violent or aggressive. I mean, how easy is it to be vulnerable? I mean, how 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 easy is it for our community to be vulnerable? I, I, I think that's a real challenge. Um that's another really deep question. Uh, I, I, have, I have to um really I really want to go into this one with uh the perspective that when it comes to being vulnerable within the black community there is a load of UK-centric, let's put it down to our sort of neck of the woods and issues. For example, crime disparity affects more the BME community, not just in in terms of of perspectives, but also in terms of everyday lives because of the levels of inequality within our society. On the sharp end, it's only just got worse in the last 10 years because of the social security net being atrophied, um, which has caused a lot of people that were stable in the past to also suffer from um, mental health issues. So psychosis is not just something that is experienced, I would say, um, from a personal perspective, there's also societal psychosis that is caused by deep 
structural issues that have caused people to manifest as being ill. Mm. So when you're in a society that valorizes aspects like high functionality in all its most, how can I put it, most obtuse ways, you know, you have to continuously be exercising, you have to be continuously at the top of your game at work, you have to be continuously the family person, you have to be the most sexually active person, you know, the list goes on, economically speaking. Mm. Vulnerability is something that is not valorized in any way. Mm. Showing vulnerability as a black male because of the steady, um, there's a psychiatrist, not psychiatrist, I think he was. There's a thinker, let's just put him in that bracket. He says something along the lines of um, men have a sturdy oak personality, they have to be strong, um, they have to be, you know, knowledgeable, and they have to also be something else there was a there was a third element in that component so there is no there is no space in if you take an oak tree and, and the qualities of, of of that material to allow for porosity and to allow for um you know a barrier to be breached because you have to continuously remember how how society impacts the individual and vice versa so the ability for us to be vulnerable is always modulated by the conversation being set by others and not by ourselves. Mm. Great point. So, Doug, how can we set the narrative then? Because I think like, I think people like Stormzy, who came out openly about his own struggles with his mental health. I think like movements like Dope Black Dad to try to shift the narrative. I mean, what, what, what can we do really to change the narrative on this and, and make it more accessible? Sure. And I think, um, as I alluded to earlier, we're, we're on that journey now, speaking up, speaking about it. Tearing narratives is, is the foundation for all civilizations. It's the ability to tell mm-hmm. and convey stories. Okay. And I think our ability as a group to tell our unique tells within the constructs of the um say criminal justice system, the mental health systems, society, are so quick. So when you put, tell a story, you're not directly criticizing somebody. It allows mm-hmm. people to appraise and look at their own value system, say, hey. Do we really need a, a young culture that is, say, glorifying taking drugs, glorifying certain certain behaviors that could exacerbate mental health issues, for example? Um, telling stories also allows the perpetrators of, of these acts that are deemed very negative and destructive to the community to take a look at themselves and say, mm, maybe I, that was wrong. I could do so. But um, if you pitch your, pitch at your group, um, acutely opposing say the establishment you end up with another black lives movement situation whereby it's us against them you know and this is one whereby it's a collective effort because just as we describe in the nuances within the bame community we're also part of the greater narrative you know we 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 feed off each other um i work when i'm on the wards i work with, with a team of people who are white some are black some Asian, it doesn't really matter, you know, um, but the effects on the whole system from social care onto, um, say, primary care, the acute care, is not just kept within a BAME budget, per se. I think there's something about res- a greater responsibility and, and the world does um, comment regarding being the oak tree. I can, I can totally relate to that because my father figure, I look at him as an oak tree. You know, mm. strong, you know, he knows everything. If that doesn't know, it's not worthy of knowing. That's how I grew up. Okay. Is that the right thing? I don't know. Does that mean my dad's resilient? You know, I've seen him be resilient through time, but I've also seen mm. the, the effects of him demonstrating his resiliency, bending opposed to standing firm, you know, being flexible opposed to just standing firm by his beliefs. I've seen that. And I've also seen the repercussions by other family members and the community when my dad was able to be flexible because culture would take you to a certain, um, the limits around every culture. 
Mm. And that is a problem. So for you to be accepted by your culture, it means you're basically subscribing <laughs> and you're conforming to the certain values and principles within that culture. That doesn't really allow for people to be individual. That doesn't allow people to be themselves and feedback to the group. Oh, I like eating this, but the group says you can't eat that. Mm. I want to go and travel here, but the group says you cannot travel there. I want this person as my spouse, but the group says no. And when you got all of those very strict rules that then end up meaning um, the black male within the community is deemed as an oak tree. There's no really, no, there's no room for flexibility. Mm. You know what oak trees happen, what happens to oak trees over time, you know, they crack, they fall down. You know, they're not resilient. Oak trees mm. are not resilient. They crash. And that's a problem. A lot of us within the BME community, we are, we're keeping up this visage, visage that we are, the strong, alpha, dominant. And the funny thing is other cultures look at, look at us in that way as well, you know, because the, the, the stereotypes are fed inward and experienced outwardly as well. So to the outward community looking in at the BME community, they'll see a black male as an oak tree. Your point, my, 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 your question to um, Eduardo Matico about, um, um, what was the question in terms of being vulnerable? It's exactly that. You know, the second you're vulnerable, but society can't see you as vulnerable. You know, if, if society deems, if a police officer deems a black male, for example, when his shoulders are relaxed and he's gazing at his feet and he's showing signs of anxiety, that that's not somebody who's been in a vulnerable state. That's somebody then now actually trying to conceal drugs. That's trying to do something mischievous. There's a problem. You know, because this is why this, I think at the heart of it to move the, move things forward is the storytelling as a collective, really. The, the more yeah. stories we, we send out there, even about um, experiences in terms of how do you feel when you're depressed? How, how does depression manifest itself in black men? Mm. You know, because there are studies being done, but the sample sizes are so small. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. so, so minuscule that you can't really do much with it. You know, even um, the strength of the medication, a lot of, a lot of the profiles for the medication that uh, is given, you know, is, I, I, I personally, now I'm going on personal opinion. I think it needs a lot more, I think there needs to be a lot more evidence based. And I've seen through experience, 20, almost, no, 15 years worth of experience working on wards. The dose of medication also given to BME communities, I would say is a lot higher. It's a lot higher because the, the nurse, the humble nurse, unbeknown to themselves, might view the black male with this, um, what's that, what's that, what's that, that film? The Green Book? Green? Um, yeah. Yeah? No, he's a big guy. He needs yeah. extra medication before it has an effect. But the, the thing is, the medication have an effect. Oh, but the, young, the individual that's taking the medication is so focused on being that oak tree. Yeah. But inside, yeah. they are feeling every effect of that, those chemicals throughout their, their body. But then the nurse, okay, up the medication until you see the tremble, until you see, you know, that, that, I think that is, uh, that is a problem. And I don't want to waffle so Matika, your, your job is to keep me on the straight and narrow because we can take it anywhere. But I think it's such a massive I subject. Speak to that. I can actually speak to that experience. I remember when I first was diagnosed and had my hospital stay. Afterwards, I was put on some medication that would make me tremble, that would make me shake, that would make it visibly and outwardly present that I was experiencing something else. When I remember quite to an extent, to an extent, when I was in the hospital, the medication that I was putting on was comp completely different. So, um, just to that point, there is a lot to be said when it when it comes to perceptions in terms of um, how we present, but also mental health um, professionals on the sharp end, as in the the the, the not the nurses. We're talking about doctors, you know, we're talking about um, psychiatrists. Most of them happen to be white. 
very middle class and not, I, I don't think I've ever been seen by a black mental health doctor. Mm. I mean, that, that kind of moves us nicely into like cultural nuances. And, uh, you know, I used to design services for a long time. And one of the things that I find really um, interesting around being culturally relevant is actually having, being assessed or seeing people that look like you. Um, and, and that's not just with black communities. I think that, I mean, we used to have a, a service for Turkish Kurdish um, community as well. And mm-hmm. the worker used to go into the gaves, like the caps, um, locally and talk to people just generally about, you know, life and how they were coping and, you know, provide that kind of informal support. And actually that made a big difference to, you know, inpatient stay in um, mental health hospitals. So sometimes I think the way we think about things can be so kind of formal and, you know, I appreciate nice guidance. I think we need it. It standardises care. Um, that's one of the things that I'm very proud about in, in the NHS. But also I think that we perhaps under um, underlook or don't pay attention to actually all those informal support communities um, that marine difference in, in cultural settings. And so I guess my question to both of you would be how do we um, how do we make this relevant? How do we engage um, BME communities and not just, um, you know, black men, but, you know, a, a wide range of uh, ethnic minorities and communities? How do we how do we engage them? How do we make treatment culturally specific instead of creating barriers? Wow, that, that, that is massive. Eduardo, do you mind if I come in? No, I don't. Okay, okay, okay. Um, how I'm going to address this one? I think the, the I think to the how is is, is such, such an important thing. And um, where we've when we've had say ten years worth of austerity, they're not youth centres. They're they're um the, the 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 weak and the vulnerable are affected mostly when it comes to um constriction in budgets. We've seen that already. Yeah, there's a big knock on effect. I would say um a lot of work needs to be done first to get a baseline, you know, mm-hmm. and I think I'm so happy with, I'm not, I'm happy about the data that's going to be coming out of the, say the coronavirus. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. one very important statistic that's come out, for example, is the, 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 the myth that was debunked very quickly that was being spread amongst BME communities that somehow this is a European mm-hmm. disease. It's the Asian disease, right? Then now mm-hmm. you've seen the evidence there. Now BME within the UK, we make up 14% of the population. 14% of the population, right? So out of that 14%, we need to get up-to-date information that how is it broken up within that percentage? Then that's how we see how we are all individually doing as a people, yeah? So that's a point in time thing. That needs to be done. That's work that needs to be done now to support um, um, outreach services, to support education programs to support better um, stories being told within music, within the film industry, within the arts, you know, and in sports. Because if our, if our role models within those areas are perpetuating stereotypes that compound our situation, there needs to be count. There needs to be a counterbalancing um, narrative that somebody who's young can also say, but yeah, I don't need to be a gangster type rapper. I've got a conscious rapper. I don't need to do art like this. I can do it like that. I don't need to act always in the violent way. I can act in this way. You need to, you need to have that um, balancing act. And I'll say um, to establish a baseline, you need to have um, understanding where we are as a community mm. right now. Where are we? And I, I, from my humble opinion, I'll say we are grieving. The BME community is still very much in the grieving stage. And this, what I mean by that is this. Um, typically in poor, poor communities all around the world, you have more children. You need more children to, um, to support you in your older age. You need more children to support you if, you, if you've got agriculture background, but you need more children, right? Because they'll give you a greater chance of survival moving forward. And you see a lot of people, the BME communities come from larger families, right? 
But there and there also lies a problem because if you are from that background and you suddenly fall ill, the effects are deeper because we're probably one, two, three generations in this country. So the support mechanisms are not fully there. So the young person feels the pressure of being, okay, maybe you're the only child in your family. And then now you're, you're got be having a be experiencing behavior that is deemed, deemed deviant, that is deemed inappropriate, that is deemed all of these negative things. And your parents look at you like you were supposed to be the breadwinner. You were supposed to do this. So the family are grieving that loss that you are not going to be that which they thought you were going to be in the first place. That's an extra burden on that individual that's their white counterpart might not need to carry to the same degree. There's not that pressure that you ha- you are the one you're here, you're, you're fortunate enough or you're, half your family are, are spread across different countries and they need that check coming from you once a month. They don't really have that um, pressure on them. And if you're not a high performer, what, what are you supposed to do when your, your aunties, your uncles, your brothers and sisters are all doctors and see every nuance within the BME community has those inherent pressures put on them, put on the children, you know, and I think that needs to be um, challenged and really um, work through, through teaching education. And like, as I said before, really, but that's underpinned by taking a look at the data so you can target your resources effectively. I can assure you, if you target a, say an intervention, um, for example, a high flying um, individual, so an underperforming young person, might not gravitate to a CBT type therapy. We've never yeah. done homework. They might not. I don't know. I'm just saying, no, there's not one size fits all. There's, it requires work. <laughs> um, I, when it comes to treatment and making it accessible and making it culturally relevant, yeah. um, the point is that some of them can be quite corny, you know, rats for life, I don't know. Uh, people just getting together and mapping. That's a good, as an intervention, it works. But because of the fact that, as Douglas said, there is no level, there is no baseline treatment that you can receive. And there's so many disparities within the system as to which ways you can access treatment. For example, I had amazing treatment um, when I was presenting ill. Um, I really did. I was taken into hospital. I was seen. Um, uh, I didn't have to wait a very long time. I had, when it came to the other end of it, when it came to the personalized care end of it, after I stopped being a danger to myself and the community, apparently, I don't think I was when I was going into hospital, but that's a different thing anyway. Um, that broke down. I didn't have someone that I for my CBT session that I could relate to. So even though those interventions may sound corny, for example, meeting someone in, in, in a cafe and having a chat with them, um, meeting people in the park, people, um, there's, an, there's a quite middle class, um, how can I put it, way of also dealing with, middle, um, with, with mental health when people get pets, for example. You get given a pet, you get given a dog, something to look after something to take to deflect the stress away from yourself so you don't have to continue to speak yeah. which is not necessarily available to people um, from BME communities because we are still as, uh, as Douglas said grieving for the fact that we've had to move from um, many from very volatile environments um, into other Volatile environments, being at the lower end of the social strata, um, which is the, which is what most people present as when they arrive in the UK, um, and the idea that we're supposed to be breadwinners is something that we need to tackle really quite strongly. I think um, because I've had it myself when when I was ill. The, the chief consideration was how long was my convalescence period before I could be a working member of society. Mm. Before I could return to the market, 
and contribute to the family pot, which was both benevolent in, in, a, in, a, in a very sort of roundabout way, but also quite emotionally taxing because there is no level of support when it comes to the state that would actually bring up that that safety net that's supposed to lie underneath a person when they're going through an experience. Um, I, 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 th- I think if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, depression really only shows after an, after an incident a year to six months after you've had actually that incident taking place. Mm-hmm. So you end up with a situation where you've had your episode and you're fine for like six months because you're high on adrenaline and you're doing well and then you you end up dipping again and those peaks and troughs are not uniform to everyone so you end up having situations in which you're really high um for example because i suffer from um kind of the schizophrenia bipolar and respect yourself Mm. so i end up being very high up um in terms of energies and in terms of being on top of things, mm-hmm. and then I have a drastic drop in my in my abilities to perform, mm-hmm. and that in itself doesn't allow for a uniform curve. So when it comes to services, again, going back to my original point, I didn't find the CBT helpful with it mm-hmm. because I couldn't relate to the person that was speaking to me. I had no cultural cues. Uh, either intellectually, because sometimes we, we sometimes place a, a, a burden on ourselves to find people who look like us in order to relate to us. Mm. But sometimes it's not about just looking at like someone, it's also being able to speak to them on an intellectual level and for them to be able to empathize with you. So that's what I want to say. I, I, I think um, what you've touched on there about around connection is, is really key. And actually, um, even as a psychotherapist, I definitely don't work with all the people that you know make inquiries and come to me because we don't have that connection. And and so I think there's really value in uh, a therapeutic intervention when there's connection. And I also think that connection doesn't have to come from necessarily a professional. I think that our um, like peer peer structure. So for example, um, you know, I've got quite a long history working with addiction and um, in addiction communities like the more informal things like NACA and those peer type support groups actually provide a lot of containment, provide that connection back into life for people. And, and I think, you know, when you've been in a really highly structured environment where, you know, you have a time to eat, you have a time to take your medication, you, you know, you've got the nurses looking after you, you've got your psychiatrist coming at a certain time, having all of that structure and when mental health is poor you know or you're really suffering it's actually really helpful it gives you a sense of uh boundaries gives you a sense of containment who you are and then all of a sudden for that to be removed and you're at home and all of a sudden no one's gonna like wake you up and you know help you for your breakfast or come around and make sure you're taking your medication and all of that stuff. I mean, I think the reality is as well, like a lot of our community services are really struggling resource wise, yeah. not just within the NHS, but in, you know, in our community in the third sector. I think that, you know, the, the, um, the funding cuts as, as you've talked about and um, Doug have been, have, have, have taken away a lot of that support and those services. And actually that's kind of what, we need to stay healthy. So I, I think it goes back to my thoughts again on, on prevention and, you know, we're not going to cure schizophrenia or bipolar, you know, they, it is what it is, but actually all those people suffering with depression, anxiety, 
stress, all the things that, you know, all of us experience at some point in our mental health. And, you know, I imagine even if you have a clinical diagnosis like bipolar, there are periods of time where you feel stressed. Like, how do we how do we access support that's relevant to us and that we can connect to and make those relationships and, you know, have communication with someone that kind of gets what we mean. I think what you're saying there is key in terms of communication, um, connections and engagement. And one of the um, things we're doing right now is connecting. Um, Mm -hmm. The whole planet is connecting now digitally, making Mm -hmm. best use of whatever um, tools they have to make those connections. And I would support you in the fact that sometimes to engage or connect with somebody you don't have to even have come from the same background. Mm-hmm. It is finding that piece of information or that, that, that nugget that allows you to engage and connect with some of that personal individual could be something as basic as the same football team or the like in the sport, but it comes from you coming from a sincere place. It's no longer about say professionals, I've, I've, tr- I, like I said, I've, I've got a long history working mental health um, wards, community and inpatient, and it's still the same thing. Those nurses that want to engage, engage, you know, because if you're on the other side, there people who are in need of help are constantly looking out for cues, as Eduardo said, cues. And sometimes the culture one are there, I understand it, but I've engaged and you can also engage people that can't even speak. Because they look at your eyes, look at your body language. They can tell you're sincere. And I think this is where the movement needs to be. We need to re-educate a lot of the people already in health from the top down. Because Mm -hmm. equally, um, a a black male being brought onto a ward whereby the majority of staff may be black in acute mental health, London, typically black. Okay. If if that experience is negative to the, the patient, yeah, person coming in, seeing the look on dis- disappointment, despondency, rejection, um, all of these things, that's going to also compound the, the mental health. It's also going to make them feel 10 times worse and delay the recovery. And I would also say that support needs to be there in terms of access to broadband. I know Jeremy Corbyn had this big dream, everyone has free access to broadband, but I really think that people who are very vulnerable should have free access to connect and make connections because no matter what a state can do, and right now we're looking at a nanny state, what can the state needs to help us come out of this coronavirus situation? I totally get it. I respect it. However, the reality of people who are um, going through mental health crisis, as Eduardo alluded to, they're self-managing right now. Even, even, even if they have an intervention for one hour a week from a community mental health nurse, if you calculate how many hours that is across a year, probably less than 5% of the time. So 95% of the time, somebody mental health is self-managing. And then they lose that, those self-managing skills when they're brought into hospital because of the structure. So something about the structure also needs um, taking a look at because if we're discharging our um, patients or individuals back in the community and they've never demonstrated their own ability to be autonomous in taking medication, their own ability to be autonomous in um, applying for a job and all of these skills that they're supposed to do the second they leave the ward. The average stay for somebody in a mental health ward is 28 days. It's mm-hmm. a month. So a month of being de-skilled. The day before you're brought in, you are self-managing and you could argue to, to what degree you're self-managing. But I would, I would, I'll pose this question. To somebody that doesn't have mental health, how are you managing? Is every day good for you? Is mm-hmm. every day you are your optimal and you're high performing? No, it's not. So the same thing, the day before somebody's brought into hospital for treatment, they are self-managing. They're, they've got the, the, the rights to self-manage and that's taken away from them. So the structure, I, I totally agree with you about the structure being there is fundamental because we don't have the... Um, a safety net, a lot of people in BME community, there's no safety net. There's no grandma you can go to and stay to, to look. There's, it's just you and either um, a parent who's working round the clock to, um, to, to, to fund you. And this is why we're seeing these, these workers um, typically dying of coronavirus 
because there should some of them should be at home. Some of them are not well enough to be at work, but the pressures are real. Um, mm. So again, so re-educating the educators, right, and the caregivers and around mental health so they, they can be best place to support. They're not going to look down at people who look like them as misfits, look at them, they will, they will look at them in, in, a, in a humanistic manner. Yeah? What they're going through is, is a society, it's all our responsibility. It's not just, oh my God, you let us down. No, 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 no. I, I'm, a big, I'm a big believer that we need to put programs in place to get in, get in those institutions and they are institutions and do some education to the people that also deliver the care. And mm. um, Eduardo, any strategies that you would add to that? So we've got establishing a baseline so we can measure properly and um, having different narratives. So we're shifting the narrative so we can hear from all of those different groups and it's not a homogenous issue. Um, there's some kind of grieving going on in the community and how do we how do we work through that? How do we support that? And then there's also something about education and to caregivers and people working in healthcare. I mean, if you had to give one tip to someone like yourself who, you know, been um, in the system, who's now um, highly functioning, out and about, getting on with their life, but actually you do still need support. You have vulnerable mm. periods. What would be your kind of your takeaway from this conversation to them? Um, I would say, just on the back of what Douglas has said, be in a way, it's about being vicious with yourself and with your own independence. Mm. Because when you need help, you need help. Mm. But it shouldn't also come at a cost of of you using the skills to look after yourself. Because I think my personal experience currently, I live alone. Um, so I have to get up. I have to motivate myself up. I have to cook for myself. I have to wash. I have to do this, that, and the other. And those skills were engendered in me quite early on. And if I didn't have those skills, I wouldn't be able to deal with living alone, which is what you might have to do as a, as a person who suffers from acute mental health issues in order to be, best manage yourself. Because sometimes living with um, the situations in which you have parents who do work, probably all the hours that God gives, you may not have safety nets themselves from their ill and so on and so forth does create even more stress when it comes to managing yourself. So I would say maintain the things that you love. For example, if you sing in a choir, try to continue singing in a choir. If you write poetry, try to continue writing poetry. I, I, I've been suffering from sort of reoccurring thoughts lately, which have also seeped into my dreams and into other parts of my general um, aura and what I did was the other day I put on a, uh, a little candle mm. I sat and stared at it and I started writing out all of the thoughts that I couldn't express verbally because they were taboo sometimes it's about also ourselves having the, the, the skills given to us but when we're feeling the lowest, that we can self-motivate out of that situation without necessarily having to rely on others. Because we have to also think about it in the sense that currently everyone's going through something. Yeah. And it's a universal thing. You know, even your health workers, the, the person that is supposed to be, even your parent, you know, is going through something. So if we have your own skill set, um, that you can unpack to the best of your ability. So I, I understand because as someone who walks up and down the high street, which I live off, um, who probably needs help currently and hasn't been receiving any. And he's always, he's almost like a town crier. He's manifesting his, his psychosis in, 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 in stealing from local shops and stuff like that. 
And I, I see, and I, uh, as a person who's gone through the whole process, mm. I see that no one's there for him mm. in that, that stage. But I would say we also have to have a, a toolkit, that, uh, which is why I think this conversation is important, that we, as people who have our own mental health issues, can also draw upon. I, I think that's uh, spot on. We need a toolkit and actually that, you know, some of us are, we're all in different places and how it manifests is, is different. We're not, um, you know, one homogenous group of people. And I think that um, all of us have um, kind of expressed that in our, in our own ways. And I really want to thank you for coming on today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We absolutely must continue it in some other form. We need to um, work that out. And I just want to thank everyone that has been watching this um, live or on the replay. If you have any questions, please post them. We will come back to you. And even if you're watching on the replay, it's not too late. You can ask a question. Also, if you would like to start to get some of those tools um, that Eduardo has been talking about, please download the Stress Awareness Programme. We will send that out to you and you can start to build those tools. So thank you for today, guys. Live from the UK, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mic Drop Club. Hosted by Douglas Hammond Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom.